Prior to the Enlightenment, scientists were motivated to do science by their conviction that the Christian God created the cosmos in such a way as to be intelligible, able to be understood, at least to a large degree, by human creatures studying it to understand the mind of God. But since the Enlightenment, this so-called uh, God hypothesis, that is, that a theistic God best explains the evidence in the created world, has fallen out of favor among scientists um, to the point where uh, most scientists won't even accept a theistic God as the hypothesis, as a scientific hypothesis uh, explaining the origin of the universe. In the past few decades, however, an intelligent design movement has been arguing that, uh, especially within the uh, information-bearing nature of uh, DNA inside every living cell, um, that that is evidence for a designing mind, an intelligent mind of some sort, whether that exists somewhere else in the cosmos or is some sort of a deistic god or, or, or whatever. Um, it has been a very modest claim that some sort of designing intelligence is responsible for the information-bearing nature of DNA. But it wasn't the uh, the full-throated theistic god hypothesis that was popular prior to the Enlightenment and which prior to that point had motivated the scientific endeavor. Well, today we're going to be asking the question uh, and, and having a guest on to help answer the question, is it time for the return of the, guide, the God Hypothesis. That's the question we ask in today's episode of The Apologetics. Hi, this is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. My name is Chris Date. Thanks for those of you in the chat who've told me that my video and sound is coming through well. Um, something I've forgotten to do, I think, in recent episodes of The Apologetics is, um, is to begin by uh, pointing out, by observing, that The Apologetics is a member of the Trinity Commission. Uh, the Trinity Commission is a network of podcasts, YouTube shows, that kind of thing, um, that, is, that are affiliated in some way with Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Trinity Seminary is, of course, the institution whose president is Braxton Hunter and whose vice president for academics is Jonathan Pritchett, the two of whom host Trinity Radio, uh, and, uh, and, and Jonathan Pritchett in particular hosts um, Trinity Radio Extra, two very popular YouTube shows that I've had the honor of, appear, uh, of appearing on on a few occasions. Um, other members of the Trinity Commission include Trinity Radio, Steve Gregg's The Narrow Path, Leighton Flowers' Soteriology 101, The Bible Bro Down, um, and there may be one or two other shows I'm missing as well. Um, if you want to learn more about the Trinity Commission and its other member shows, go to Facebook and search for the Trinity Commission and you should be able to find it there. Um, 
Now, I wanted one of the big reasons I wanted to start by observing this show's uh, membership within the Trinity, Trinity Commission is because um, my uh, uh, Braxton Hunter, who is the professor in my very first course at Trinity in the THD in theological apologetics that I've just begun pursuing, he, he's the professor of that class, and he has uh, extended an invitation to my classmates for uh, a, a, an opportunity to earn five additional points of extra credit if they watch today's episode and the interview that I'm about to play uh, and write a response paper. So first of all, thank you to Professor Hunter for offering that extra credit to my classmates. Um, I'm honored. Uh, it, it's a blessing that that my show would be something Professor Hunter would uh, consider worthy of sharing with classmates. And if any of you, my classmates in, um, I think it's RW840, uh, I might be misremembering that, but apo uh, Contemporary Apologetics one. Uh, my classmates, if you are here watching live, or for that matter, if you watch this after it's been archived to this channel after today's stream is over, either way, thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you find this interview in today's episode uh, fascinating, interesting, compelling, and encouraging. With all that out of the way, let me go ahead and explain what today is. Um, I have been a fan for quite some time of the Discovery Institute, and in particular, one representative of the Discovery Institute named Stephen Meyer. Um, I don't think it was but a few years after I became a Christian 20 years ago that I discovered the work of Stephen Meyer and the Discovery Institute and really from then on became an extremely big fan. I, I, I read Signature in the Cell when it came out. Hardly, it was hard to put it down. I read through it very quickly, absolutely loved it. Um, I don't think I ever read Darwin's Doubt. I should probably get my hands on that. But Stephen Meyer recently uh, uh, published another book, this time called The Return of the God Hypothesis. And I have for a long time wanted to get Stephen Meyer on my show to interview him back when I was doing just audio podcasting. And for one reason or another, it was, wasn't something we were ever able to work out. But I have somehow, by the grace of God, been able to, I was able to secure an interview with Dr. Meyer. Um, and originally, we were going to do the interview live, uh, I think it was last episode, two weeks ago. Uh, but unfortunately, it ended up not working with a schedule and we had to reschedule for the middle of last week. So the interview that you're about to see with Dr. Meyer on his book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, was pre-recorded uh, a week ago. Um, I'm going to play it. It's about an hour. But right now, as I'm speaking to you, it is in fact live, assuming you're watching a live stream, not, not the archived recording after the stream is over. And after the interview is done, I will return live um, to see if there's any questions or thoughts that I can field before signing off. And in the interim, I will be in the YouTube chat uh, participating and, and um, watching the interesting comments that you guys have as you watch this video. So without further ado, let's go ahead and transition into my interview with Dr. Stephen Meyer of the Discovery Institute about his recently published book, The Return of the God, Hypo God Hypothesis. Enjoy. Dr. Meyer, I have been a huge fan of your work for several years. Um, I, I became a Christian about 20 years ago, and I really don't think it was much longer after that that I discovered the Discovery Institute and your work. Um, and, and so I just want to thank you so much for your time today. It really means a lot to me. Well, thanks for having me on, Chris. 
Uh, like I do with most of my guests, I'd like to begin, if you don't mind, asking you about your faith background. Is you know, I came to faith 20 years ago, like I said, which was when I was about 21, 22 years old. Uh, a lot of other people are raised in a, a Christian faith or some other kind of faith. Do you mind telling us what your background there is? Well, I had a kind of nominal um, Christian background. Uh, our family were initially in the, uh, a Catholic uh, tradition, uh, traditional Catholic church, but uh, we were infrequent attenders, and at a certain point we just stopped going. Um, and through my teen years, uh, uh, I had a kind of, a, uh, almost a kind of angst or existential angst, I guess. I didn't know such big words at the time, but a, a lot of questions that were popping into my mind all the time that were very unwelcome about uh, just a sense of, um, of uh, the futility of the routine of life and wondering where it all was leading and what it all meant. And uh, I had a recurring question, what's it going to mean in a hundred years? I couldn't think of anything that I was doing or even aspired to do that would have any lasting meaning or value. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a, 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 a very kind of despairing feeling. I began to worry that the questions that I was asking or uh, that were bubbling up in my 14-year-old consciousness were an indicator that I was perhaps mentally ill. I thought maybe this was what it meant to be insane. I remember having the thought, what did, maybe this is what it means to be insane. Wow. And I had a lot of worries about or uh, uh, yeah, d d strange feelings about time and uh, the way one moment passed to the next and was gone forever and I, I had this sense that there had to be something that didn't change or all the constantly changing sense experiences that we all have are essentially meaningless and uh, and that troubled me too and then I started to get afraid of the, the questions and afraid that they meant that I was insane and I get a fear of the thoughts I was having and I became afraid of the fear of the thoughts and it was a kind of terrible maelstrom of, of um, uh, anxiety but it was a kind of a metaphysical anxiety that maybe nothing really had any any ultimate meaning or purpose and uh, in my teen years um, I, I gradually pulled out of this it was a very intense sort of experience for several months and uh, but sometime in my teen years, I began to read the big uh, uh, white Catholic family Bible. And I started at the, uh, in the middle, uh, opening to the, a picture of uh, Jesus of Nazareth that was in, the, uh, in, in the, at the beginning of the New Testament. And I began to read and um, I found that in the writings of the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were things that were addressing some of these underlying questions I had about reality. Yeah. And uh, whereas I had friends that would have uh, religious or Christian conversions experience that would give them a kind of euphoria, what was happening to me was that as I found answers to some of these underlying uh, questions about meaning, about time, about um, how we could, I, I actually had a real worry about how did I know that what I was seeing was the same as what anybody else was seeing. Um, was I had a worry about the essentially the reliability of my own mind and sense perceptions, <laughs> and there was something in the biblical basic biblical worldview that little by little started to address the things that were haunting me and bothering me. Um, even the name of God, I am that I am, seemed to say that there was something that uh, doesn't change that is the ground of all things that do, and. Um, 
so I gradually and then upon reaching college uh, also took a lot of philosophy classes and realized that a number of the things that had been haunting me or bothering me were actually philosophical questions. I hadn't been by any means the first person to ask them. Um, I was taking a course on existentialist thought and encountered uh, the works of Jean-Paul Sartre, who said essentially what I had been asking, you know, without an infinite reference point, nothing finite has any lasting or enduring meaning. And uh, and so I realized that uh, the things that had been bothering me were were a consequence of a life without God. Mm. And I became philosophically convinced that uh, of theism, of basic theism, that God must exist. There must be a God. Uh, it seemed to be the, the best and really only uh, explanation for the reliability of the human mind. And I was convinced by that, which was called the epistemological argument from necessity, or the, uh, the necessity of theism as a grounding for, for the belief in the reliability of the mind. But I also had a push-pull just internally, wasn't really, there's a big part of me that didn't want to be a Christian. I wanted to have the you know the the moral freedom to do whatever I wanted, like I suppose most of us do, <laughs> and uh, so I wanted. I, I believed it was true, but didn't want it to be true, and it wasn't until uh, first year or two out of college that I really kind of settled, in a sense of of being a committed Christian uh, believer. Uh, it was a few years later that I first encountered some of these very powerful scientific evidences for the real the the for intelligent design and the reality of God, and that's been much of my life's work since. Yeah, great. And we'll be talking about that. But you, you, you said something really interesting. You said you were uh, very into philosophy, but your degrees, your, your master's and, and doctoral degrees from Cambridge, which you earned in the late 80s, early 90s, I think, your your focus there wasn't on philosophy full stop, I think, but the philosophy of science more particularly and, and the history of science as well. So do you mind saying sort of what, what spurred your interest in, in, in focusing so much of your academic career on, on that particular topic? Right. Well, as an undergraduate, I did a double major in physics and geology and then took as many philosophy classes as I could on the side. And um, uh, uh, so I was always interested in questions at the intersection between science and philosophy, where, where in a sense, science stops. You know, science may help us uh, discover what the laws of nature are. But then there's a deeper question as to what is a law of nature? Mm -hmm. <laughs> why, you know, what, what, what causes these regularities and why do we believe in them? And um, in, in any case, I was interested in those questions at the intersection of science and philosophy. And in uh, 1985, I was uh, four years into my career as a geophysicist looking for oil in Texas. I was doing a, using a technology known as uh, digital signal processing of seismic data. And it was an early form of information technology. And I attended a conference on the origin of the universe and the origin of life that was uh, headlined by leading scientists and philosophers who were debating those interesting subjects from two competing worldview perspectives. On one side of the panel were the atheist agnostic materialists, and on the other side were the theists. And I was struck at the conference by some of the arguments made by the theists about the evidence for design in the universe and in life, and in particular by also the evidence uh, 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 from astronomy and cosmology about the universe having a beginning. I heard the famed uh, astrophysicist Alan Sandage give an extraordinary talk on the evidence for the Big Bang and the beginning of the universe. Uh, evidence that he himself had been instrumental in securing as uh, Edwin Hubble's graduate student at Caltech. And um, 
uh, Sandage at the end of the talk announced his own uh, conversion to Christianity from a, a position that he had long held as an agnostic, uh, a Jewish agnostic, and uh, it was a very powerful talk and very closely uh, linked in his own explanation of his thinking to the scientific, some of the scientific discoveries that he himself had been part of. And then another scientist named Dean Kenyon in the panel on the origin of life announced that he was repudiating his own uh, leading theory. It was a leading theory at the time of the chemical evolutionary origin of the first life. Uh, his theory was called biochemical predestination. And he explained that it did not, it did not provide an adequate account of the origin of the digital information, the instruction set that's stored inside the DNA molecule. And instead, he argued that that information, as several other of the theistic panelists on that topic argued, that the, the information in DNA seemed to point to some sort of uh, intelligent cause, that we know that it takes a mind to generate information. So maybe what we're really looking at, at the foundation of life in every living cell in the information-bearing properties of those big molecules is evidence of, of a designing mind. I was incredibly intrigued with that. I wasn't entirely convinced at first, but within a year I was off to Cambridge to do work uh, eventually on origin of life biology, which is what I did my PhD thesis on. Awesome. Yeah. Well, and, and you mentioned Dean Kenyon. I recognized his name from some of the material coming out of the Discovery Institute, I think, uh, a decade and a half almost ago or something like that. Um, but but mentioning, because I mentioned the Discovery Institute, I wanted to ask you if you could um, talk about how you became a part of the Discovery Institute and its Center for Science and Culture and, and, and what those organizations are. Well, Kenyon is actually a big part of that story because uh, I finished my PhD in 1990, 91. Um, in 1993, summer of 93, Philip Johnson convened a small uh, private conference on the coast of California. And at the conference were many of uh, the, at the time, up and coming young proponents of intelligent design, Douglas Axe, uh, Paul Nelson, uh, uh, William Dembski, Michael Behe, but there were some older, more established professors at the conference as well, including Dean Kenyon. And in one of the sessions, he revealed that he was uh, in, the in the middle of a, of a horrific uh, battle over his academic freedom at his university, San Francisco State University. He had shared with his students upon questioning uh, his own views about the origin of life and how they had changed over the years. And some of his department members reacted very badly to that, accused him of, um, of bringing religion into the science uh, in a classroom, accused him of being a creationist. Uh, and he was censured and removed from teaching his introductory biology class. Now, I heard this story and was uh, a little bit outraged because I had just done a PhD on origin of life research. And I knew the importance of Kenyon's work from 69 all through the 70s and into the 80s, he was a leading figure in the field. Mm. No one on his faculty at San Francisco State University knew anything as much about the, the theory of chemical evolution or the origin of life problem as did Professor Kenyon himself. So to be censured by people who knew far less about the problem than he did um, for, as it happened, only answering a student's questions about his own personal view rather than even <laughs> uh, teaching 
you know, about intelligent design in the, in the classroom was to me kind of just an extreme case of the abridgment of academic freedom. And so I said, you know, in my hot-headed young way, you ought to sue. <laughs> and Professor Johnson, a law professor from Berkeley, who was also there, said, uh, no, he'll get nowhere doing that. That's not going to work at all. We need to try this in the media, he said. And so I thought, well, I've written an op-ed or two. And I came home and uh, drafted a piece for the Wall Street Journal. And uh, uh, it was uh, rejected out of hand immediately. <laughs> but uh, uh, Professor Johnson was on the phone with one of the journal editors telling uh, her about the, uh, the story. And she said, has anyone, has anyone submitted anything about this to us? And uh, uh, he, he told about my, re my piece having been rejected. She said, well, send it to me. I'll have a look. And they ended up, uh, about two months later, it took a while, but they ended up publishing the article. And it was published on, I think, December the 6th, uh, 1993. That was, a, that was a Monday. I called Professor Kenyon the previous Friday to let him know that uh, there would be an article about his case coming out in the Wall Street Journal. And he said, that's amazing. Uh, my academic freedom hearing before the state, the, the academic senate is on, uh, on the Tuesday. Oh, wow. So as it happened, the, 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 the journal article came out on the Monday. Uh, I spent the, all day answering calls from talk radio stations who wanted to interview me. There was a tremendous uh, kind of negative exposure for the university, and he ended up uh, winning the vote at the at the faculty senate hearing the next day. Twenty-five to eight was reinstated, and was even allowed to begin to teach a graduate uh, course on information theory, intelligent design, and molecular biology. So uh, that was kind of exciting. Yeah. The, the connection, though, to Discovery is this, is that the president of Discovery saw the article in the journal, reached out to me. Uh, I came over the following summer, did a seminar on the case for intelligent design based on the information stored in the DNA molecule and the, all the work I'd been doing on origin of life research. And uh, within a year or two, we were, were, were planning the formation of what we now call the Center for Science and Culture, a program that initially began to sponsor research of scientists who were interested in uh, the evidence for intelligent design in life and in nature. Awesome. Well, I hope that uh, people will check out those resources, those websites, and I'll ask you where people can find them online toward the end of our discussion today. Um, I want to start talking about your latest book, Return of the God Hypothesis. But but even before that, I want to ask you about the more modest hypothesis, if you will, that you offered in, or, or defended in your previous books, Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt. Because in, in, in those books, or at least Signature in the Cell, I'll admit I haven't read Darwin's Doubt, and I apologize for that. But at least signature of the cell, you argued from the information-bearing nature of DNA to something of a relatively more modest proposal than what you're arguing for in this book. So can you tell us what that more modest conclusion was? Well, right. I, I argued for a designing intelligence of some kind, of some kind, as the best explanation for the origin of the information stored in DNA and RNA and the large uh, uh, information-bearing uh, macromolecules in the cell. Um, in the in the the, the argument uh, in, in signature in the cell, I first told the story of the discovery of the the structure of the DNA molecule occurred in 1953 with Watson and Crick, but then also uh, the development of what's known as the sequence hypothesis, which Crick advanced in 1957, and 
Crick proposed that the DNA double helix, the beautiful structure that we know from high school biology class, contains along the interior of those twisting helical spines, uh, the, the sugar phosphate backbone, along that sugar phosphate backbone are chemical subunits called bases that he proposed are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written language or digital characters, the zeros and ones in a section of machine code. Hmm. And Richard Dawkins himself has acknowledged that the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. <laughs> and um, Bill Gates has said that DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever written. And in fact, both those descriptions are quite apt. Uh, biologists now routinely describe the instructions, the genetic information or instructions in DNA as digital code. Uh, and uh, what I argue in Signature in the Cell is that whenever we find information, especially in a digital or alphabetic form, and we trace it back to its source, whether we're talking about a computer program or a paragraph in a book or a hieroglyphic inscription or information embedded in a radio signal, Whenever we find information, especially in that kind of a digital or alphabetic form, and we trace it back to its source, we always come to a mind, mm. not a material process. That's something we know from our uniform and repeated experience, which is the basis of all scientific reasoning about the past or about nature generally. And so one of the conclusions I came to during my PhD years was that it was possible to formulate a rigorous scientific argument for intelligent design using the same methods of reasoning that, for example, Charles Darwin used in The Origin of Species. Uh, uh, he used an, a distinctively historical uh, scientific method where you reason from effects back to causes uh, based on our knowledge of cause and effect, our, mm. our, our repeated experience of cause and effect. And so there's a point in my research where I asked myself, um, what is the cause now in operation for the production of digital code? And I realized there was only one. It was it was intelligence. There's a famous information theorist named Henry Quassler who said that the the production of information, the creation of information, is habitually associated with conscious activity. Um, if that's true, and I think it is, then that implies that the presence of information uh, provides the basis for inferring the activity of, of prior conscious activity. And so the argument of signature in the cell was that our uniform and repeat experience affirms the uh, the activity of a designing intelligence as the best explanation for the information we find in even the simplest living cells. And therefore, you can't explain the origin of life without positing a designing intelligence. Right. But I didn't. But I did not. And that's, I think, the force of your question. Attempt to identify the designing intelligence, or to assign any other attributes to it, other than. Uh, mind-like properties of self-conscious awareness and and uh, uh, intelligent agency. Right. So then, like the the um, the argument that you offered in Signature um, theoretically could lead to something as simple as an intelligent mind somewhere else within the cosmos. Uh, something like panspermists. Is that what you'd call them? Advocates of panspermia. Pan, the, the panspermia advocates. There you yeah, go. When I say they're panspermists, but you know, I don't know. Right. You could point a term here today. Maybe it'll catch on. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah. Um, go ahead. Right. That was a logical possibility that I didn't uh, attempt to uh, foreclose in the previous book. Right. Um, uh, 
I, I did uh, argue that you know that the, this discovery has theistic implications because theists expect to find evidence of design. We're finding evidence of design; it sort of confirms a theistic hypothesis. But there might be other worldview or exotic scientific hypotheses that could explain the same evidence. So in this book, I addressed that question head on. Uh, many readers, in fact, have asked me, "Who do you think that designing intelligence is, and what can science tell us about that?" And so this book was. Uh, I, I formulated this book to address those questions. And to do that, I expanded the range of evidence under consideration. And instead of only examining the evidence we have about the nature of life at its foundation and the, and the question of the origin of life, I also look at this book in, at evidence from physics and cosmology relevant to understanding the origin of the universe and the origin of its finely tuned structure. Yeah. You, you you talk in the prologue of Return of the God Hypothesis about how an experience you had in a 2016 debate with Lawrence Krauss sort of is what spurred you to think, hey, this is this is maybe a case I want to develop and a book I want to write. Do you mind talking briefly about that experience and how it prompted you in that direction? Yeah, no, no problem. Um, yeah, Professor Krauss is one of the, the country's leading scientific atheists, very capable advocate or exponent of that position. Uh, it happened at the debate that I got a migraine in the middle of my presentation and my visual field went all wonky and I started to hear my voice kind of echoing in my head. It was extremely distracting. And then I was having trouble pulling words. And um, I, 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 I kind of struggled through my 25 minute opening statement. And then there was a third speaker speaking after Professor Krauss and me. And during that time, I went to a, a dark room, a Canadian doctor at the University of Toronto sort of took me under his wing and um, so I was able to come back for the discussion that followed the third speaker. I found I was speaking very slowly, still having trouble pulling words. But near the end, I, I, things started to clear a little bit. And the uh, the um, moderator asked, uh, you know, asked us to summarize our position. And I found myself um, partly because I was having trouble s saying things in a very nuanced way, just kind of spouted out three key discoveries that I thought pointed not just to a designing intelligence, but to God. And um, and because the, the topic of the debate was what lies behind it all. And I said, well, I think what lies behind it all is God. And I think there's three big discoveries that support that. And I said the, the, the discoveries were that the universe had a beginning, that the universe has been fine-tuned for life since the beginning or soon after. And we have discovered in even the simplest living cells information in a digital form as part of a complex information processing system and that information apparently arose long after the beginning of the universe. And I said, when I add those three things up, that seems to me to provide support for a, a, a classical theistic conception of God, a God who transcends the universe and is capable of bringing it into existence from literally nothing um, and structuring its, its physical parameters, but also a God who acts after the beginning, so not a deistic creator, not a space alien either. Space <laughs> aliens wouldn't explain the origin of the universe upon which their existence would uh, would depend. So um, I can't remember how much of that I said, but I, <laughs> I, I, I popped out these three big facts that I thought supported theism. After the debate, I got a lot of you know, sympathetic letters and emails from people who felt bad for me at having had a migraine in front of so many people watching online and all of that. But the comment I repeatedly got was that the one thing that people remembered about the substance of the debate was that last closing statement. 
And I thought, well, maybe it's time to, to bring those three strands of evidence together into a book that uh, makes the case not just for a designing intelligence of some kind, but a designing agent who has the attributes that have long has been associated with the concept of God. Yeah, yeah. I want to dig into those um, in, in in the rest of our discussion, but I just want to say I, I watched that part of your opening presentation in the debate today just to see if I could see that happen, and you really well, I can. I, I've never gone back and watched it. I, I, I'm tempted to ask you how bad was it? It, it wasn't so, that bad, but you could tell. I mean, you, you, it was clear something painful and and difficult was starting to happen. So I'll, I'll include a link to that I debate. Right when it hit, it was like 18 minutes in, and I it just uh, I went to really simple words and just <laughs> tried to get through. You know, and, and you know, it was a kind of a feeling of helplessness because. Uh, and, and I had a, a little bit of a sense of resignation to it because I knew there wasn't a thing I could do about it at that point. It just these things just have to run their course, you mm -hmm. know. It's a, so anyway, yeah. uh, but it, the silver lining in it was that uh, you know I had to 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 choose my words carefully and out pop something that I thought I might be able to work with. Another silver lining in that, which I write about in the prologue, was that uh, I did a deep dive on uh, some of Professor Krauss's work on what's called quantum cosmology, actually less so on his own work because he popularized the conclusions of quantum cosmologists, uh, in particular, uh, the work of Alexander Vilenkin. But I ended up doing a deep dive on Vilenkin's uh, technical papers on quantum cosmology and the idea that you could explain the origin of the universe from some pre-existing laws of physics before there was any matter, space, time, or energy. And uh, this was the, the basis of Krauss's title in his book, universe from nothing and uh, I realized as I was I was studying this that there was a bit of a sleight of hand in all of this that's right and that, that uh, we can talk about more but I realized that, that the strongest counter argument to the standard cosmological argument from the beginning actually reinforced the theistic conclusion in a, in a subtle though unrecognized way and I unpack that in the new book in the latter chapters of the book explaining that quantum cosmology which was meant as a counter argument to the the cosmological argument has its own theistic implications. Yeah, and and if, if we do have time today, I'll be asking you about that. But let's uh, let me say from the outset that this book is extremely dense, not in an inaccessible way, but it's just very detailed, and I love that about it. I'm just going to sort of scratch the surface with you um, in the hope that viewers will be teased into, you know, buying your book. Um, and so I want to cover briefly each of those three things that you mentioned and that you cover in detail in part two of your book. Uh, the first of these observations from the natural world that uh, that have you know th that lead you to think that the God hypothesis is the best explanation is the observations and reasoning that led that led uh, 19th and especially 20th century scientists to conclude that the universe had a beginning. So can you unpack that for us and and, and how the observations that scientists observed led to that conclusion? Right. There there were multiple lines of of evidence that have supported the the conclusion that the universe itself had a beginning. Um, the first inklings of that came in observational astronomy in the 19-teens with the work of an astronomer named Vesto Slipher. Um, he was noticing that the light coming from distant nebula was um, 
what's called redshifted. It was being stretched out. The wavelengths were longer than you would have expected if those distant objects were stationary in relation to us. If something's moving away, the wavelengths of light or sound will be stretched out and get longer. So the what uh, and in with a visible spectrum of light, longer wavelengths correspond to the red end of the ultraviolet spectrum. So scientists call that redshift. In the 20s, Hubble. Um, after Hubble established that there were galaxies beyond our own using some new um, uh, measuring techniques that were developed by Henrietta Leavitt, uh, he also confirmed that, th that what had previously been called nebula, which he now understood were separate galaxies, <laughs> uh, were moving away from us. The light coming from those, those galaxies was redshifted. And uh, later, uh, an, uh, a, a, a physicist named um, Lemaitre, the, the great Belgian priest a physicist, synthesized this observational data with uh, some of the developments in theoretical physics that were coming out of Einstein's theory of general relativity. Uh, uh, Lemaitre solved Einstein's uh, uh, field equations of general relativity he was convinced that those equations and the theory implied a dynamic universe expanding outward from a beginning. Einstein initially uh, tried to circumvent the, that conclusion of his own theory, but later came around. And Lem but Lemaitre brought that um, the implications of general relativity and the observational data together, synthesized it, and that became known later as the Big Bang Theory. That was 1927. Einstein in 1931 went out to the Mount Wilson Observatory with Hubble and had a look, peek through the telescope, looked at some of his data, announced a couple of weeks later in an interview with the New York Times that, that, that Hubble and his colleague Hummison had shown that the universe was in fact dynamic, was expanding, therefore there was a beginning, and he later said that his uh, attempt to circumvent that conclusion by gerrymandering his own equations a bit was the greatest blunder of his scientific career. So you had two main strains of evidence from the beginning. Um, the the implication of the theory of general relativity coming out of the theoretical physics, and then the observational evidence from astronomy of an expanding universe. There were other pieces of evidence that came along, like the discovery of the cosmic background radiation, other things we learned about the ages of galaxies and so forth, and um, then then uh, even new wrinkles on uh, understanding things about the, the cosmic background radiation in the 1990s with the COBE satellite and so forth. And I tell the story of the, the multiple discoveries that led to the conclusion that the universe, as best we can tell, had a beginning. Yeah, that's one of the things I really enjoy about your book is you do a great job telling the, the, the story of the history behind these kinds of observations. I, I want to ask you a quick question about the expansion of the universe because um, I think a lot of lay people uh, like me misunderstand what is meant, or at least all of what is meant by by the Big Bang and the expansion of the universe. You see, until, and I'm sure you know exactly, or will know very soon where I'm going with this, but until fairly recently, I envisioned the universe's expansion as just the expansion of matter into what I thought was just sort of an infinitely expansive void that we call space. And so I thought the Big Bang was something like, if you imagine a really big balloon in the center of which are some marbles clustered together, I thought the expansion of the universe was the explosion of those, or those, those marbles apart to 
fill into the balloon into the balloon but of course as you know that's not quite the picture that scientists are trying to paint when they talk about the big bang because scientists have, have concluded that space itself appears to be stretching or expanding so can you explain that that for us why we know that to be the case or at least why we think we know that to be the case and 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 how it additionally supports the the concept that the universe had a beginning well maybe that easiest way into this is is to recognize that in Einstein's theory of gravity space is a dynamic element uh, space is curved for example by the presence of a large massive body you could think of to illustrate that something like a bowling ball sitting on a trampoline hmm. the, the, the bowling ball is going to create a curvature in that surface of the trampoline Einstein's idea was that that the the, the large massive bodies actually curve the fabric of space but he also uh, also conceived of space as as connected to time time and space are part of a single fabric uh, which he called space time and uh, in in the book I, I give some examples of, of thought experiments that he did and other things that have been discovered that sort of render that a bit more plausible but if space and time are connected and if um, and if space, if time begins a finite time ago, uh, at the beginning of the universe, then as as you go for, in the forward direction of time, space is going to be expanding with the time in the forward direction, um, and so you have uh, in, in with it, it's an implication of Einstein's theory of general relativity that space and time are uh, connected to matter and energy, and that matter and energy are connected to space and time. It's all one big fabric with these different fundamental elements. So the beginning of the universe begins with the beginning of time. As time goes forward, space expands and uh, and matter expands into that expanding space. So the correct picture is not the one that's intuitive to all of us, that there's a pre-existing space into which all the marbles uh, disperse, but rather that the space is expanding as the as the marbles are dispersing. Um, and that that's the picture that modern physics paints. But it also implies that if you go back far enough in time, you get to a point where the curvature of space, and this was something proven by Stephen Hawking, uh, that the curvature of space approaches a limit. It gets infinitely tight because as the matter is getting more and more densely compacted, the space is getting more and more tightly curved. And eventually you reach a limiting case where the curvature of space gets infinitely tight. Mm -hmm. And that corresponds to zero spatial volume. And so you have this kind of paradoxical uh, result where everything is coming out of zero spatial volume, which is to say nothing, because if the uh, universe is infinitely tightly curved, there's no place to put anything at first. And uh, so that's a pretty, a, a, a very profound result of modern physics. Uh, Paul Davies calls it an extremity. There's a point past which you cannot extrapolate. Um, there is a, there is a a point that marks the beginning of the expansion and arguably therefore the beginning of the universe itself. Yeah. Now, so with that in mind, how then does the recognition that the universe began to exist, not just the matter in it and not just the energy, but even space itself, how does this recognition lead, do you think, to the conclusion that, or, or, or to think that the God hypothesis is the best explanation for that fact of nature? Yeah, that, that's the way I would put it. Um, None of us can go back before the Big Bang to see what was there. But um, one of the standard methods of reasoning we use in science is to posit that entity, which, if true, would best explain 
a, a given event or phenomena. Uh, so science has that indirectly inferential character where you start with certain fact and then you think, well, what must have been present to produce this fact or this phenomena? Mm -hmm. And um, so as we think about what comes into existence at the beginning of the universe, we're talking about matter, energy, space and time so whatever brought the universe into existence can't be those three th those four domains because those were the things that began to exist before which presumably they did not exist in which case whatever brought the universe into existence must have transcended the realms of matter and energy space and time uh, and had yet the ability to initiate an, uh, a radical change of state uh, in which those things began to exist from something that was not matter, space, time, or energy, and um, and therefore must have a, a something like volition or the ability to create a radical change of state. So if you have a, a, a powerful entity that can create a radical change of state that transcends space, time, and energy, and matter, uh, well, the, certainly God fits that bill, uh, it got uh, uh, and so in other words god as postulated by theists has precisely those attributes and uh, god as postulated by deists has those attributes as well a pantheistic god does not have those attributes materialism is an inadequate explanation because prior to the origin of matter there was no matter to do the causing so when you begin to look at the at the possible explanation something like deism or theism provides a better explanation than does uh, materialism or pantheism or a space alien designer or a number of other things that you could you could formulate so um, so uh, this is not a proof of the existence of God but it's a, it's a strong indicator uh, it, uh, the, I, I would argue that the Big Bang or the evidence for the Big Bang presides evidence for the existence of God because positing God best explains the evidence we have Although it would fit nicely into something more like a deductive proof, a la the cosmological argument, right? I mean, if if every if any if everything that begins to exist has a cause, and if the universe has a beginning or began to exist, I mean, it kind of seems deductively valid. But of course, we're talking science here, not necessarily logic. Well, no, I mean, it's per I think you can make a deductive argument for the for a, a duck. You can make a deductive argument for the existence of God based on the observation of a cosmological singularity. Um, I prefer to make arguments of the um, abductive inference to the right. best explanation form uh, because I think w with de deductive arguments um, can provide certainty only if the premises are absolutely certain. And but they can have still have there can still be uh, uh, what's called epistemic force of deductive arguments even if you come up short. So you can convert arguments from one logical form to another. But I think what we're really doing is we're thinking about this is we're saying okay here's a fact. If that is you know we we have strong reason to think that the universe began to exist. If we accept that as a fact, what would best explain that if true? And it turns out something like God would, whereas the worldview of materialism or a pantheistic god, or a space alien designer, or panpsychism, or a number of other things you could think of as possible metaphysical explanations don't do as good a job as classical theism or deism do. Right. Well, let's move on then to the second category of observations that you cover in your book, which is uh, which are those observations that seem to indicate the universe is extremely finely tuned to make life and its flourishing possible. So uh, unpack that a little bit for us. What, what, what do you mean when you say the universe is fine-tuned and could you give us a couple of examples? 
Yeah, sure. The, the physicists have been using this term since about the 1950s and 60s. And the idea of fine-tuning is that there are basic parameters of physics that must fall within very specific ranges, uh, either strengths or values of some kind, uh, that are necessary. Th uh, they, they must fall within these very specific ranges in order for life to exist in the universe at all. In fact, even for uh, the, even the formation of stable galaxies or b the formation of basic chemistry depends upon many of these parameters being just right. And because they must fall within very narrow ranges out of a, a much wider range of possible or natural values, um, the, the probability of getting uh, many of these fine-tuning parameters by themselves is extremely small. The probability of getting the whole ensemble uh, of independent parameters exactly right is astronomically small. <laughs> and, um, and so many scientists have thought that, as Fred Hoyle put it, a common sense interpretation of the evidence suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics in order to make life possible. Um, the fine tuning, in other words, implies a fine tuner. Now, uh, one of the examples of the fine tune of, of, of a finely tuned parameter is something called the cosmological constant. It's the outward pushing force that is acting in opposition to gravity that's a, that helps to account for the expanding universe. An accepted value for that fine tuning is one part in 10 to the 120th power, uh, maybe a more uh, commonly accepted or you know a safe uh, estimate of that is one part in 10 to the 90th. Uh, estimates range, but it's an exquisite degree of fine-tuning. <laughs> if we use the 10 to the 1 in one, uh, one part in 10 to the 90th, that would be like um, the probability of getting that um, by chance is would be like the probability of a blindfolded man being sent out into space, floating around looking for one marked elementary particle not just in our universe, but in 10 billion universes our size. There are 10 to the 80th elementary particles in the universe. Uh, so, so some of the in, just specific individual fine-tuning parameters are in many cases just beyond computation or extremely, extremely improbable, exponentially so. Uh, but then the ensemble, the whole composite of the fine-tuning parameters, just a couple dozen of them at least, is uh, the, the probability of getting all of them right is 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 uh, almost beyond computation. So this is uh, you know that that that's an example of, of just one that if the universe is expanding too quickly or too if the force producing it is too strong, we get a heat death. If it's too weak, we get a recollapse. And many of the parameters have that not too strong, not too weak, not too fast, not too slow, not too heavy, not too weak character. That's why some physicists say we live in a Goldilocks universe. Yeah. Um, well, you've mentioned why it seems uh, unlikely to the extreme that it happened by chance, but there's also this possibility or, or proposal that it's just by physical necessity that these uh, that these um, uh, facets, these aspects of the universe are the way that they are. Why, why couldn't that be the case as opposed to, say, a, a, a fine tuner? Well, when we talk about physical necessity, we're talking about uh, either explaining or subsuming some phenomena under some general law. And I, as I explain in the book, the fine-tuning parameters are, um, they have very idiosyncratic values 
of, and they are denominated in different types of units, and sometimes they are unitless. Um, so rather than having uh, a, a series of values that conform to some nice uh, kind of function, like a, a para the shape of a parabola or a x squared equals y squared or some uh, something that could be represented with a, a single law-like or algorithmic function, you have a whole host of idiosyncratic values that are not even being denominated in the same uh, in the same met by the same metrics with the same units. So it's really hard to see how there could be any single overarching law that could subsume them or explain them or uh, demonstrate them to be the the consequence of, of w one single kind of force or function or mathematical reality. Another way to, to address that is to recognize that the fine-tuning parameters are often what are called contingent values. There's no underlying physical explanation for why they have the parameters or the, the values that they do. And in every physical law, there's a kind of free parameter that has to be determined by measurement. In the case of gravitation, there's something called the gravitational force constant. If we just use Newton's version of gravitation for the moment, we've got the equation is that the force of gravity equals the mass of one body times the mass of the other divided by the distance between them times a constant known as g. And g ends up representing all the other factors that are relevant to determining the force of gravity not, not captured by the relevant variables in the equation. It's kind of a sweeper. And um, and the only way to get the value of g is to make a measurement. Mm. It, it's not something you can uh, you can deduce from knowing the the, the the values of the other of of the other variables, for example. And even if you were to say, well, we're going to get one grand physical law that that reduces all of the laws of physics to to one theory of everything, to explain the universe in all the specificity that it manifests you're still going to need a free parameter to capture that specificity. The laws of physics don't do that without these free parameters. There's no known law of physics that, that uh, captures all of reality. None of the fundamental laws, the, the, the force laws, capture the phenomena they're trying to describe. With just the variables, there is always this free parameter called a, a constant of proportionality. and. Um, there's no reason to think that we would even even if a, a grand unifying theory came along that that the that all free parameters would be eliminated. In which case, you would still have to have fine tuning because the fine the free parameters are the things that are finely tuned. Yeah. You change them just a little bit one way or another, and life is impossible. Yeah, very good. Well, let's talk very briefly about the third category of observations from DNA. And, and for this, I'm going to let viewers check out your book, Signature in the Cell, for much of the detail, or, or pick up this book, of course, and read it. But the one, I think, really unique contribution in this book as compared to, say, Signature, is that you, you deploy the information-bearing nature of DNA as evidence, not just for a mind, and not just for, say, a deistic type of God, but actually a theistic kind of God that's even more, you know, more involved in creation than a deistic God would. Can you explain how, how you do that? What, what, it, what about the information in DNA makes you think that? Well, it's not, it's not so much the information in DNA alone. It's the uh, the compositor, the ensemble of evidences that I address, showing that uh, you know if you look at the DNA, 
posit that a, an imminent intelligence within the cosmos is responsible for that quote signature of intelligence, which is actually a phrase that Dawkins used in a film uh, um, expelled a number of years ago, where he <laughs> speculated that the signature of intelligence that you might be looking at in the DNA molecule might be the consequence of an alien intelligence somewhere else. And in this book, I just take that hypothesis on uh, head on and at face value and say, well, it's got two problems. One, any alien intelligence would presumably have to evolve from some simpler form of life, which means that life would have had to get started somewhere else, which means that the information problem would have to be solved out in space someplace. And uh, that's not a way of solving the problem, just saying that it happened someplace else. You've got to give some plausible account of how undirected chemical processes could produce something like digital code in the, in the context of an overall information processing system. Everything we know about chemistry suggests that chemical reactions don't spontaneously move <laughs> towards that level of um, informational complexity. Um, so it, in the end, the panspermia hypothesis doesn't actually solve the problem of the origin of life. It just boots it out into space. Uh, it certainly doesn't solve the problem of the origin of information. Mm. But beyond that, no, no intelligent agent within the cosmos could be responsible for the fine-tuning of the laws and constants of physics and the initial conditions of the universe upon which its future evolution and existence would depend. Nor could any alien intelligence explain the origin of the universe itself upon which its, its, its existence depends. Yeah. Uh, uh, any alien intelligence would have to arise after the beginning of the universe and after its finely tuned parameters were set. So uh, as far as uh, so as you compare the explanation of panspermia to the explanation of a theistic inte intelligent designer, uh, the theistic intelligent designer explains all three facts very well. Panspermia may provide a very weak explanation for the origin of inf the information you need to build life. It doesn't provide at all an adequate explanation for the origin of the universe or its fine tuning. So theism is a better explanation of the of the of the whole class of evidence we have that then is panspermia and similarly uh, theism is a better explanation than deism deism might explain the origin of the universe and its fine-tuning but it doesn't explain any evidence of design that we have arising long after the beginning of the universe because the deistic creator does not act by definition after the beginning so it, when you look at the the, the suite of evidences we have from biology, physics, and, and cosmology, I think theism provides a uniquely adequate and uh, 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 sufficient explanation when we're comparing competing worldviews. Yeah, very good. Well, one of the things I really like about your book is the is, is part four in which you address some of the objections or counterproposals meant to sort of null, uh, dull the, the arguments like the ones you discuss in your book. Um, and I just want to ask about two of those briefly before we wrap up. One of them is, and, and the reason why I want to ask about these two particularly is because they're very hot topics today. One of those is the, is the prospect of a multiverse. So could you first begin explaining why it is that the multiverse is offered as an explanation for uh, th that is meant to sort of, like I said, dull the argument from the beginning of the universe for God's existence. Well, it, the multiverse is primarily used as a counter argument to the theistic argument for design from fine tuning. Mm -hmm. It is relevant in a way to the origin of the universe question, but only tangentially. Uh, the 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 fine tuning presents this kind of 
obvious evidence of design, fine-tuning suggests a fine-tuner. The multiverse advocate says, wait, 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 not so fast. If there are lots of, if we can presuppose or postulate that there are a number of other universes, so many in fact that they would render the probability of the fine-tuning parameters arising somewhere, then we can essentially explain the origin of the universe as a consequence of chance, of a chance process. But that actually has, is problematic for two reasons. If these other universes, and let's, let's stipulate, let's concede for the sake of argument that there are billions and billions of them, <laughs> Gabillions, I like to say. <laughs> uh, uh, if those other universes are causally disconnected from our own, their existence does not affect anything in our universe and therefore would not affect the, pr uh, uh, the probabilities associated with whatever process it is produced our universe, uh, produced the fine tuning in the first place. Mm -hmm. So they, they, uh, the probability problem is not actually solved by simply positing other universes. To get a and, and in recognition of that, multiverse advocates don't just now posit multiple universes; they posit multiple universes and an underlying universe-generating mechanism of some kind. Some of those mechanisms are based on what's called inflationary cosmology. Another mechanism is based on what's called string theory. And it turns out to explain both types of fine-tuning that we we encounter, fine-tuning in the initial conditions of the universe, fine-tuning in the the um, the laws and constants of physics. You actually need to invoke both of those fine-tuning uh, 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 universe-generating mechanisms in, in tandem. Hmm. Uh, but, but be that as it may, the big problem is that once you, is that even in theory, these universe-generating mechanisms have to be exquisitely finely tuned in order to produce new universes. All the models, all the universe generating mechanisms that have been proposed have this character. They rely on prior unexplained fine tuning. And so we're right back to where we started Yeah. Uh, with needing to explain the fine tuning. The multiverse does not actually explain the ultimate fine tuning of the universe. But in our experience, finely tuned systems, whether we're talking about French recipes or Swiss watches, or internal combustion engines, or just getting the radio dial set to the proper setting so you can listen to the music, a fine-tuning is a consequence of intelligent design. That's what we know from experience. So absence, absent an adequate materialistic explanation, and the multiverse hypothesis does not provide one, intelligent design stands as the best explanation of the fine-tuning of, of the the laws and constants of physics and initial conditions of the universe, the, the cosmic or anthropic fine-tuning that makes life possible in the universe. Yeah. Okay, good. And the other one of the objections I wanted to cover that's also a hot topic is um, a little bit as difficult to understand as a multiverse kind of thing and a universe-generating mechanism might be. I think this one's even a little bit more hard to understand. I can't even begin to understand it. So I'm hoping you can at least explain what the, the counter-proposal is. But it has something to do with with what you and I sort of hinted at earlier that that somebody was playing word games with the word nothing. Um, I remember just a few years ago, I don't know if it was Stephen
Stephen Hawking um, or somebody else, but they they made this claim that the universe can, in fact, uh, create itself from nothing, provided that there's a law like gravity or something like that. So that's a, a Hawking quote. Yeah. 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 So can you maybe explain to us what that proposal is, and then maybe why you don't think that that sufficiently addresses the challenge? Right. Okay. Well. Um bit of a backstory, but let me give it a shot. Here. Sure. Uh, the uh, standard Kalam argument that you mentioned, the cosmological argument runs, whatever begins to exist must have a cause that the universe be began to exist, therefore the universe ha must have a cause separate from itself. We call that cause God. In response to that argument, a number th there was an initial attempt to, to refute premise two, to, to say, uh, well, we're not absolutely sure the universe had a beginning. Um, we have an indication of that from observational astronomy. That's a, a clear uh, uh, a consequence of the theory of general relativity. But if we um, if we recognize that general relativity may not apply, you know, we're, the, the idea of Hawking was the universe is expanding outward in the forward direction of time. You back extrapolate, the matter gets more and more densely compacted, curvature of space gets more and more tightly curved, and you finally reach a singularity. But you only get all the way back, you can only back, back extrapolate all the way to the singularity if general relativity would have applied as the go-to or applicable theory of gravity at every phase in the universe. Mm. And the idea of quantum cosmology is based on the recognition that in the very tiniest uh, little t expanses of space that would have existed just after the beginning of the universe, inside something called Planck time, uh, 10 to the minus 43rd of a second, the, the size of the, the universe would have been in that tiny little smidgen of time, within that tiny little smidgen of space, general relativity may not have been the correct description of how gravity worked. Hmm. We may have needed a quantum theory of gravity. And so people have, aqua uh, have applied the mathematics of quantum mechanics to, to describing that early state of the universe and possibly even the origin of the universe. And um, in quantum mechanics, there is this strange phenomenon called wave-particle duality, where uh, a particle going through in like in a double slit experiment will manifest wave-like characters over time as it lands on different parts of a detector. And what the, the mathematics of quantum mechanics does is try to capture the, or describe the probability of finding that particle at any given point in its kind of wave-like manner. It has a wave-like manifestation until it's detected. Mm. And, and that means that the particle could appear anywhere uh, along that spreading wave front with some finite probability. And the math of quantum mechanics tries to calculate how likely it is that the particle would be at one place rather than another. It allows you to make that calculation. Okay. The quantum cosmologists use that mathematics to describe the different, not the different possible places the particle could be, but the different possible gravitational fields and universes with those different gravitational fields that could emerge out of the cosmological singularity. And so they uh, attempt to solve a big hairy equation that's the analog of a big hairy equation in quantum mechanics. In quantum mechanics is called the Schrodinger equation. If you solve it, you get a, 
a, a wave function that allows you to calculate the probabilities of the particle being in one place rather than another. Mm. In quantum cosmology, you solve an equation called the Wheeler-DeWitt equation, which is an analog to the, the Schrodinger, and then you get a universal wave function that allows you to calculate the probability of getting one type of universe with a, type, with a specific type of gravitational field as opposed to another. Mm. The quantum cosmologists treat the universal wave function as an explanation for the origin of the universe if they get a universal wave function that includes our universe with its particular physics and its particular gravitational field as one of the possible outcomes of that mathematical modeling of solving the universal wave or of solving the wheeler dewitt equation and getting a universal wave function okay. that's pretty heavy stuff <laughs> I realize. okay but here's here's the rub here's the rub um in all these quantum cosmological theories they all presuppose a singularity mm. they all presuppose that they're calculating the probability of getting a particular type of universe out of the singularity but they're all presupposing a singularity. So the beginning never really goes away. Hawking in a popular book called The Brief History of Time had a little mathematical ledger domain, he even called it a trick, which portrayed the universe without a beginning if you portrayed it using imaginary numbers. But then he also acknowledged that that portrayal had no physical meaning. And if it has no physical meaning, you can't draw a metaphysical implication from that and say, no beginning, no creator. Mm. So illicit move. He doesn't attempt to do that in his technical papers. Now, that was a really an interesting and important discovery that we made. Um, he presupposes a singularity in his technical papers. So point one, quantum cosmology does not get rid of the, the beginning. It presupposes it. Point two, yeah. it's, it is explaining the origin of matter, space, time, and energy coming out of a purely mathematical construct the universal wave function and the prior equation you need to solve to get that wave function. And that has led to a deep paradox that even some of the quantum cosmologists have acknowledged. There is a, uh, one of the leading quantum cosmologists, Alexander Vlinkin, says, uh, in what sense could these equations have had an independent existence before there was matter, space, time, and energy? The laws of physics before there's matter, space, time, and energy have nothing to describe. So the nothing that they're talking about, the universe coming out of nothing, is coming out of a mathematical uh, um, reality. And then he goes on to acknowledge that mathematics exists in the realm of the mind. It's, it's conceptual. And then he asks, so does this imply that a mind must have predated the universe? Mm. And I think, in fact, it does. If you accept this way of conceiving of the origin of the universe, you're actually saying that ideas gave rise to matter, space, time, and energy. Ideas in a mathematical form. That's not that different than saying in the beginning was the word <laughs> or yeah. let there be light. Uh, but then beyond that, it turns out to get a universal wave function as a solution to this prior Big Harry equation I was talking about, the Wheeler-DeWitt equation. The, the theoretical physicists have to impose what are called boundary constraints on the equation. Mm. Boundary constraints are always applied by, or determined by looking at the physical system that you're using the math to describe. But there is no physical system yet, so where do these boundary constraints come from? And these boundary constraints are restrictions on degrees of mathematical freedom that allow the mathematician to solve the equation. Well, where do they come from? 
They come from the arbitrary choice of a theoretical physicist, and invariably those boundary constraints are chosen in a specific way to get an outcome that is desired, mm. namely a universal wave function that includes a universe like ours. Now, whenever you say zero, not one, this, not that, you're imparting information. And when you're imposing boundary constraints on this big equation, and by the way, there are an infinite number of solutions to this equation until the boundary constraints are applied. So you're imparting a lot of information by restricting those degrees of mathematical freedom in such a way as to allow the equation to be solved. And so what, what is then therefore being modeled? I argued in the book what's actually being modeled is the need for a mind and intelligence to constrain degrees of mathematical freedom, impart information in order to get a desired outcome. Yeah. Now that sounds like intelligent design. Sure does. That's not that's not a way of modeling nothing producing something. That's a way that and this is one one of the um, the the uh, punchlines in the book is even if Lawrence Krauss and Alexander Vilenkin could explain the origin of matter from math alone they can't explain the origin of the information that's necessary to get the mathematical description they need. Yeah. And and so I think what's actually being modeled in this attempt to circumvent the cosmological argument is actually a godlike mind that pre-exists the universe. Yeah. That's really fascinating. It, it reminds me that uh, of a quote or, or something I remember I remember from not long ago that said, you know, in the time of Darwin, when people thought that the cell was just a little blob of plasm, um, believing that it could have come about by pure chance at least had some level of plausibility to it. But as scientific advancement has occurred and we understand what's going on, that that hypothesis just seems increasingly implausible. And what's fascinating about what we've been talking about is that um, it sounds like this, a similar kind of thing is happening in, in cosmology that um, or, or astrophysics or whatever, that there may have been a time a couple hundred years ago where uh, as astronomy didn't uh, didn't lead necessarily to the conclusion that uh, a creator exists. But the more and more we learn and the more and more scientists try to escape the dilemma, it seems like the more and more they're falling right into the trap. You know what I mean? Well, uh, one of the things I was attempting to do in the book, and readers can assess for themselves whether or not it was successful, was to construct what philosophers call a, a robust argument, showing that uh, different ways, uh, different factual predicates or different theoretical approaches end up leading to the same conclusion. And I think if you accept the indications that we have from general relativity, excuse me, and the evidence from observational astronomy pointing to a beginning of the universe that does, uh, I think, support a strong form of the cosmological argument, whether rendered deductively, as William Lane Craig refers to do it, or rendered abductively as an inference to the best explanation, as I prefer to do it. Yeah. But if you reject the idea that there was an absolute beginning because we can't be absolutely certain of our back extrapolation based on the inapplicability of general relativity within Planck time, blah, 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 then you will opt for a quantum cosmological approach. But the quantum cosmological approach, as I've just explained probably in excessive length <laughs> for your poor audience, uh, leads to a theistic conclusion of its own. Yeah. Um, now, it's been pointed out to me from some very good cosmologists that there are newer cosmological models. Um, I refuted and critiqued in my book the standard oscillating 
model that was popular in the 1980s. There are newer versions of that called cyclical cosmologies. But those models depend upon uh, um, arbitrary resets in entropy. So you've got a, a universe that's expanding and then maybe it contracts. But uh, Alan Guth has shown back in the 1980s that a, uh, a cyclical expansion and contraction of the universe would require um, uh, or, or entails a loss of energy available to do work. It, it, it with each expansion cycle, you get an increase in entropy. The contraction then leaves you with less entropy available to do work in the next cycle. Um, or it leaves you in a high entropy state that corresponds to less, entry, less energy available to do work. And so you have a kind of a bouncing ball effect where eventually you run down. Since we haven't reached a state of nullifying equilibrium, a heat death, um, we must not have been around an infinite amount of time because if we'd been around infinitely, we would already be to that state. And therefore you can still infer that there must have been a beginning. Um, and some newer models have said, well, we could have an, a, a reset of the entropy. Uh, Roger Penrose has a model where he actually doesn't have a, the universe expanding and recollapsing. He has it expanding to a particular point, and then at a particular point and a particular time, entropy is dramatically lowered by what he calls a phantom field. And the phantom field ends up having godlike properties that are associated with no other physical field. It can act discreetly at a moment of time at the right place to increase spontaneously or sp spontaneously decrease entropy and increase order. Um, well, maybe, but the only thing we know in the universe that has those attributes are agents. <laughs> and so again, the attempt to circumvent the implications of one cosmological model, or, or this, namely the, the standard Big Bang or the inflationary cosmology um, with another cosmological model ends up requiring godlike properties of the alleged phantom field. Um, so I, I, I have the, I mean, not to use this in a religious sense, but it's the sort of an all roads lead to Rome kind of <laughs> argument where, you know, you're, you're going to get, you're, you're going to get back to theism one way or another. You, you can't circumvent this. Yeah. It's almost like God intended it that way. Uh, Dr. Meyer, I've very much appreciated your time today. Uh, if you could just leave our viewers with information on how to find you online and how to get a copy of your book, that'd be fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking. Uh, the, the book is available at almost all the online sites, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books, uh, uh, Books A Million, I can't remember them all. Our publisher, HarperCollins, has its own website, and you get the book there. There is a spirited review war going on at Amazon right now. You're, if your readers not only want to buy the book but have their say, they may enjoy uh, weighing in to, uh, there. I also have a website, Return of the God Hypothesis, Dot com. We're logging um, many of the media interviews I do there, as well as debates and uh, op-ed articles and reviews and responses to critique. So if you're into this subject, it's kind of a great go-to site now with lots of great content. Fantastic. Thank you so very much. Viewers, do get your hands on a copy of Return of the God Hypothesis. It's, it's fantastic work. And Dr. Meyer, again, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, Chris, and for your uh, very well-informed uh, questions. Uh, good interview. Thank Thanks. you. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. And, and by the way, when uh, Dr. Meyer ended that conversation saying it was a great interview, uh, that really <laughs> that really um, made my day. Uh, and I'll, I'll add that uh, Dr. Meyer said that he may um, take out some snippets of this interview and post it on their media page or whatever for the book, which I'm really excited about and may give this channel a little bit, little bit more exposure, um, which I think is, is awesome. So anyway, I really had a blast interviewing Dr. Meyer. It was a dream come true for several years. I'm sorry for those of you who would have liked us to go into more detail in certain things or discuss certain questions like whether or not uh, a young earth creationist like me can embrace certain aspects of uh, Big Bang cosmology. You know, there's a lot of interesting topics that we could go into more detail in, but I really did only have Dr. Meyer for an hour, and I wanted to be very uh, sensitive to his time. I wanted to honor the time commitment that he made for me. So uh, in future episodes of The Apologetics, whether I get him back on the show or somebody else, or I just do it myself, I'll dive more deeply into some of these kinds of uh, details, some of, some of these kinds of topics. But in the meantime, my hope, and I mean this sincerely, is that the conversation that I just had that you just got to watch uh, whets your appetite, uh, teases you into really wanting to get your hands on a copy of Dr. Meyer's book, and I would encourage you to check it out. I'm about two thirds or so of the uh, two thirds or so through the book. It's blowing my mind. I'm absolutely loving it. And I think that you will, too. So go to Amazon.com, search for Return of the God Hypothesis, or, or you know, go to whatever bookseller you prefer and get your hands on a uh, hardback copy or a digital copy today. Trust me, it'll be worth your money. Uh, thanks to everybody who um, tuned in live. And if you are now wrapping up the episode, have, uh, having begun it after we streamed, thank you for watching the recording. If you enjoyed this episode, please do click that like button. You know, I'm sure you've heard this a billion times. You know, smash that like button, smash that subscription button and notifications bell. But in all sincerity, those things help the uh, help my channel benefit from the various YouTube algorithms that that determine what kind of exposure it gets and those kinds of things. Um, and also, just watching through to the end of the video helps the algorithms as well. So again, thank you very much. Not sure yet what topic I'll cover two weeks from today, uh, but I will announce it on Facebook, as I always do, at least a few days before that episode. Uh, so be on the lookout for the next episode of The Apologetics two weeks from today. It'll be Monday, June 28th at the usual time, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and I'll try to make it... Uh, there's no way I'm going to be able to compete with the episode that you just watched, but I'm going to do my darndest, okay? I'll, I'll try to make it a good one. So I hope to see you then. And until then, take care and God bless. And uh, thanks for watching. Bye-bye. I've been your host, Chris Date. And thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...